Hey everyone out there, welcome back Patriots. I am your host, Ron Kern, and I appreciate you guys tuning in. This is a doozy for you to tune in. Uh, uh, you know, researching, studying, writing uh, about the revolution, as you know, is my passion. And I wanna thank all of you for allowing me to share my passion with you. And this is just my 27th episode, which is a lot to me, but as we'll find out, not so much with our guests. Um, but today's a very special one. Um, what makes it most special is that we have the privilege of having Michael Troy with us. He's an, an expert on the American Revolution. And truth be told, uh, I've never told him this, uh, but he's really the inspiration uh, behind me creating this podcast. Um, I've always been kind of an entrepreneur and all of that, but after listening to him for several years, I was like, I want to do that. Um, so he inspired me to create this. Um, he is the creator and host of the American Revolution podcast, which personally I consider one of the most thorough and detailed podca podcasts pertaining to the American Revolution, bar none, um, that's available. Um and when I first really started getting wild about the American Revolution, I wanted to learn more. And so I'm searching every podcast, every video, every YouTube. Um, and the search was not not real good. Um, the results I found were lackluster at best. And or they summarized everything about before the war, the war, after the war, the first five presidents and about seven episodes, which I'm like, huh? How is that even possible? So, but then I found your podcast and I started listening and I'm like, where does he get this information? Like, how did he find this? And that, and of course my previous life, I owned an investigation firm. So I'm like, well, I can maybe find it, but the stuff you come up with uh, is amazing, which I'll, I'll ask you uh, about here shortly. Um, your attention to detail in every episode, it's not just here and there, it's every single episode to me is extraordinary. Uh, they're they're always insightful. Um, I almost send me on a, several rabbit holes um, every with every one of your podcasts. I know firsthand the sheer amount of time it takes to research, record the dreaded editing, uh, publishing for just one episode. And, and I can't fathom how much time it takes you because I know how long it takes me, uh, but it is a question I'll get to. Um, now, the other exciting thing is that not only is it our first ever guest interview, which I can't imagine anybody better than you being here, but it's also our inaugural video episode. So if you're listening right now, like you normally do, don't worry, you can catch the video version by following the link, which will be in the show notes. Uh, we got some pretty cool stuff planned for Patriot Power Podcast YouTube channel and all of that fun stuff. But let's get back to Michael Troy, who launched the American Revolution podcast in July of 2017. That's over five years of historical excellence with an impressive 277 episodes and almost 6 million downloads. That's probably a, a fraction of how many people have listened to you. It's evident that you're not making history interesting. You're really 
captivating the audience. Um, and I feel that most people need and should hear and learn about the American Revolution, what created our country, and you do so, um, so well. Um, your most recent episode um, was uh, five, four or five days ago, and then you have finally reached, or not finally, but you've talked about the Battle of Cowpens. So knowing where that falls along chronologically, um, thankfully for me and many others, we have a lot more uh, episodes from you to come. So I've done a little bit of recon. I read some interviews that you've been in, watched a couple of videos, and I want to make this uh, a little different, uh, hopefully for you, and a little more unique. So I will be quiet now. And uh, Michael Choi, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now you live in uh, you live in New Jersey. Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your previous life before you uh, started the daunting process of creating the American Revolution podcast? Well, sure. I've always been interested in the revolution my whole life. Um, I think one of the first books I read when I was five years old was a kid's biography of George Washington. And I think I've been hooked ever since. Uh, it's just a very fascinating topic for me. And I, I've grown up uh, in the greater Philadelphia area. I lived in Delaware for a time, and I live in South Jersey, right across from Philadelphia now, um, which, of course, is a cradle for much of what happened during the American Revolution. A lot of great things happened in the area. So it's just always been a part of my life and very interesting. So um, a few years ago, I decided I really wanted to do a deep dive. I mean, I've always read about the revolution, but you read a book here, a book there you don't really necessarily get the whole story in context. So I really wanted to do a deep dive into the subject. And um, I had originally anticipated doing a blog just to kind of keep track of where I was going with, with through all of it. Uh, but at the time, and I guess 2016, when I was planning all this, blogs were on their way out and podcasts were in. And I thought, all right, let's see if my voice is any decent enough to do a recording that people will listen to we'll try it that way and see what happens it seemed it, it must be um because I, I know a lot of people listen to you um is it uh so did you have anybody that maybe mentored you or were you just did you jump into the fire and hope it all worked out or was there somebody that maybe inspired you to um to start this endeavor or was it just kind of on your own? I didn't really have a mentor. I didn't know anyone personally who did podcasts. Um, I was inspired by Mike Duncan, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. He's a great podcaster in the history field. Mm -hmm. uh, one of probably the first podcast I ever listened to was the history of Rome. And it was just because I was on a long road trip and I said, looked through the history podcast and said, I don't know a whole lot about history of Rome. That sounds interesting. I'll try that. And I was, I was hooked immediately. Uh, I thought he did an amazing job with um, covering lots of details about an issue, uh, a topic that I kind of knew, but didn't know in detail. So I was interested in learning a lot more about it. And the fact that he could do it and be funny and informative at the same time, um, and that so many people were interested in listening to that kind of inspired me to say, well, yeah, maybe I could do something like that as well. Uh, many listeners may know that Mike went on to do a second podcast called Revolutions, 
which covers a whole bunch of different revolutions um, throughout the world. Uh, the American Revolution was his second season, and he, he whipped through the American Revolution in less than 20 episodes. So I had been really looking forward to that one, and I was kind of disappointed. I mean, it was great for what it was, but it was, like you said, a lot of people do short summaries of the American Revolution. They don't get into as much detail as I would have liked. And so I think it was after that that I decided, all right, I got to do something on this because nobody else is. Yeah, somebody's got to do it, right? Um, which brings me to this. Yeah, I, I've listened to that and I was and I was excited to to listen to it too. And I went one through there's only 20. Oh no. I mean, it was good, like you said, but for I guess I've never been called a nerd, but I guess I am kind of a history. I have history nerd um decal, I guess I am. So yeah, it's it's proof. I'm a history nerd. Well, the Zoom doesn't show, but I have a decal. Apparently I'm a nerd. I mean, obviously his focus is a little more wider, but um, I think yours and mine are pretty similar. And and, and although you've, well, being the revolution, but you you had uh, three other blogs or were any of those other podcasts like Unlearned History. Um, you did some other things previous to this, right? Um, I, I had a blog called Unlearned History, which is basically history you didn't learn in school. That was the idea behind it. It was just random, interesting articles about different things. Yeah. And I just did that for my own amusement. Uh, never really went anywhere. Um, it was while I was doing that blog that I decided I really want to focus on the American Revolution and do that in detail. And because I had no... Um, experience in podcasting or recording or anything i thought well that, that, you know every podcaster will tell you their first season just sucks because they're learning the business during that yeah. time and, and and the technical details so i thought all right what i'll do is i'll go back and i'll just record all of my unlearned history blog articles as podcasts uh just to mm. figure out which microphones work best how how my voice sounds uh learn how to do editing, all those things. So I kind of got my 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 first horrible season out of the way by recording that. And I, I did post it online, but I never actually submitted it to an RSS feed. So so kudos for you for finding it because I've never <laughs> had to let anyone wow. find it. Anymore. Yeah, I figure anything that you put out is, is worth listening to. So obviously everybody has their own process or maybe um, habits of creating an episode. Can you walk us through the process that you go through uh, in creating an episode? Obviously, you know, I throw in bonus episodes here and there. So it kind of gives me a break uh, from the chronological. Yours is definitely um, super detailed and thorough as far as chronological. Um, what is your process for creating an episode? And how long does it take you from start to publishing it? for one episode or have you ever timed it well it's hard to say because i'm usually working on a bunch of episodes at once um you know when i when i actually started planning this podcast in early 2016 and as you said i didn't start i didn't release episode one until july of 2017 i spent a lot of that well, a lot of the time was recording my unlearned histories and improving my abilities there but i was also doing a lot of research and writing during that time and I had nearly 100 episodes written by the time I wrote, uh, released episode one. Uh, and that was a 
important thing for me because what I really like to do is write the episode and then write a few more after it. And then sometimes when you've written things that happen afterwards, you think, oh, I really should have covered X, Y, or Z in that earlier episode. You can write that in before you're actually recording it. So I'd write an episode and then hopefully come back to it months later and look at it a second time and say, all right, well, this is how I want to change it. Um, so I would do that. I, I'd write the episode, then I have to record the episode, edit it, um, write up the blog, which I, I, I have a sister blog that follows each episode, which is basically as a transcript of the podcast. And it also, I had pictures and maps and uh, a bibliography of all the sites and, and books that I use to create the episode. The whole process, I would guess, probably takes me about 30 hours per episode yeah. for, for what's a half an hour episode. And I think, you know, um, I, I, I don't think most people understand the, the amount of time work. Um, and unless it becomes something insanely popular, you know, we're, we're probably not going to retire from from our podcast. You might be. Um, but you know, so you, and, and I, I want to touch base on, on the sister blog. Um, I find that to be completely, I mean, uh, maybe a lot of people listen to it and, and don't visit your, your sister blog. I highly encourage uh, you guys to do that because everything that is in his, his episodes, he has links to books and photographs, and it really helps complement the show's what you listen to the episode part and uh, is there any so i'm assuming like you because you list off the books that you use and you have some links is there is there anything that you like go for specifically regarding primary sources because i it still boggles my mind on how detailed i mean you you rattle off quotes and facts that aren't in most books um and for that matter you'd kind of i presume you have to scour some primary sources to even get some of them is there a, is there any thing that you're using that like you go to first um or is there something that's like a super valuable tool while doing your research i do use a lot of books uh I'd love to do more primary research, but it's you yeah. don't have the time. I do dig into it on some things when I, you know, find an interesting issue or there's a um, author's disagreeing on a point or something like that. Then I might dig in a little deeper. But I try to mostly stick to to books and use credible books by established authors who are good at and really know what they're doing about a topic. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I have a huge library as you can see behind yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, those are all American Revolution books on that shelf, on yeah. that whole shelf there. Um, I use my library a lot and my library, like most libraries has an interlibrary loan program. So if there's a really obscure book you want and your library system doesn't have it, you can order it and they will get it from another library across the country and deliver it to you to use to read. So that, that, that sort of thing is very helpful. Um, archive.org obviously has yeah. a huge number of both documents and books available mm -hmm. to read, which I find very useful. Um, 
founders.archive.gov, which is a site run by the National Archives, is a, a great place for primary um, research. It basically has the correspondence of all the founding fathers, and you can do word searches and topic searches and date searches for all sorts of things. So like when I was covering uh, a few weeks ago, the um, mutiny of the Pennsylvania, New Jersey lines, all of that happened within about a four week period. So I just went through every single letter that every officer and politician wrote to everybody else within that four to six week period. And it gave me a whole lot of information on what was going on. Well, and and I'll, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but um, once if you haven't listened to his website and I'll, or listened to his podcast, I'll have a link to everything. Um, just click and go to it. You will understand what I'm talking about. Um, so you don't just Google, you know, and uh, or use AI. Write me a podcast, right? A lot of people are doing that now. Um, no, I actually tried that once and it just it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just to I see mean, what it could do. Yeah, it's yeah, that's a that's a scary topic. So yeah. I, I I think what's really uh a great thing that you did um is that you didn't start with all right, I'm gonna do a podcast on the American Revolution, and it started with Lexington and Concord. A lot of people think that, but you spent almost 20 episodes going back and giving a history lesson and a, uh, a background of the French and Indian War and also provided other historical snapshots that really laid the framework down prior to the revolution. Uh, the French and Indian War, sometimes called uh, the Seven Years War, which is odd because it, it didn't go seven years, but I'll never, maybe you know the answer to that, but um, is there a moment or an event or a person during the French and Indian War that stands out to you or um, something interesting about that particular war that, that you, you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I sometimes joke, especially in my first year, I, I went an entire year without even talking about the American Revolution because it was, I believe it was episode 52 and I do one a week, so 52 weeks. The end of episode 52 was the first shot at Lexington. So I went an entire year without actually talking about the war in a, in a podcast about the war. So, yeah, I really wanted to start with the French and Indian War because as much as people don't know about the American Revolution, they know even less about the French and Indian War, which was really um, the cause of the political disputes, which eventually led to the American Revolution, all started as a result of the French and Indian War. Um, the French and Indian War was um, fought, obviously, between the British colonies and the French and their Indian allies, but it led to a much larger world war, which was known as the Seven Years' War. So usually the, the war that took place in the Americas was the French and Indian War, the war that took place in Europe was the Seven Years' War. And okay. that actually did take seven years over there because we got started a couple years earlier over here. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of it is that George Washington started the French and Indian War. And that was really kind of his origin story. He was a young kid who, because he came from a prominent family, got a choice military position to go out and basically tell the French people to get off our lawn um, up in the Ohio area where um, 
Virginia had claimed all that land. Um, and he ended up picking a fight with the French, which ended up starting a world war. And uh, I, I think Washington does not come across particularly well in that war because not only does he start an entire war, he spends most of the war fighting with um, the British general, British officers that he's serving under because he wants Virginia to get an advantage out of the war rather than Pennsylvania. And he ends up kind of quitting halfway through and just going home and settling on Vernon. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting aspect of the war. Um, the other interesting thing is that the French and Indian War in America really was a side, became a sideshow to the larger Seven Years War. And the French were really kicking our butts um, throughout the early part of that war. And it was really only after the British Navy cut off the, the French from being able to reach Quebec that, that things really turned around for the British and their uh, American colonial allies. Mm. So, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting thing. And, and there's a lot of... There's a lot of generals who fight, fight in the American Revolution that played a pretty important role in the French and Indian War. I think the Battle of the Monongahela, there's probably at least a dozen um, officers who end up fighting on one of the other sides of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of an interesting prequel to the whole war. And then, yeah, yeah of course, we went through that and then into the, um, the tax protests over... Um, that were basically written as a result of wanting to get out of the debt for the French and Indian War. Then those tax protests, of course, eventually led to the American Revolution. Well, then uh, one year, one year later, in fifty-four episodes, I think later, you know, then 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 you touch base on Lexington and Concord. I I uh, I find uh, the the first fifty hundred episodes uh, of your podcast amazing because. And and by the way, when you tune into to Mike's um, podcast, um, don't start with the topic that you really like. Start with number one and go down because it will really enlighten you and put things into a better perspective on how um, how how all things kind of took place. Um, you know, and then a year after that, you're you're talking about. Um, the Declaration of Independence. So when I say detail and thorough, that's that's what I'm talking about. Uh, regarding Lexington and Concord, I just did a, a show on that. I tried to walk people through an immersive as much as you can do via voice um, on what it might have been like to be uh, in the militia there. Is there, a, I'll ask you a similar question, is there a person, event, or a moment at Lexington and Concord that stands out to you albeit both of those were in one day, a lot happened. Is there anything uh, regarding that that you want to share? Yeah, well, the Battle of Lexington and Concord is really interesting because it it didn't just happen in Lexington and Concord. There was basically a running firefight from Boston all the way out to Concord and then all the way back again. Um, so there wasn't really one big battle or even two battles, there were hundreds of little skirmishes fought that day. I kind of uh, analogize it to kicking over a hornet's wasp and then having to run across the field two or three times. Mm. That's what it was like for the British. Uh, they were constantly getting, uh, you know, a shot here, shot there, trying to fight off whoever was shooting at them, only to have somebody shoot 
shoot at them from the other side of the road. And it was just, it was a complete nightmare for them. Um, for the Americans, um, it was just, it was pretty much chaos. Everybody had kind of expected something like this was going to happen at some point. They had all thought about turning out to fight the British when the British finally did fire on Americans. And that's really what happened. There was no big army that formed immediately. It was a bunch of people running out of their houses with their guns, taking pot shots at the enemy, and then running away before the enemy could kill them. Uh, one of the people who always stands out to me is Samuel Whittemore, yes. uh, who was, he was an 80-year-old man at the time. Um, he heard, he got the message that the British were on the march, that they had shot at people at Lexington. He sent his family to safety, pulled out his musket, and went off and said he's going to shoot himself a couple of British soldiers. And that's exactly what he did. He ran down to the road that he knew the British were going to pass by, found a good position, took shots at a few of them. Um, the British, of course, chased him down and shot him and bayoneted him. And you know, he took out a few of his pistols as they were charging him, but you know, they just they totally creamed him and left him for dead. Amazingly, he survived with over 13 or 17 uh, bayonet wounds and bullet wounds. And the 80 year old man lived well into his 90s and survived the whole thing. But he's kind of an interesting example of somebody who just, you know, was willing to put his life on the line. He wasn't being called out and ordered to go stand in a line with the militia. He just said, we have to show them that their their treatment of us is unacceptable. And if I lay down my life as a result, so be it. Yeah, that yeah that the the Battle of Monotony, um, which was kind of brutal, and and the bloody trail back. Um, it's so cool because I have all this stuff in my mind, and I try to share it, you know, to others. But when you when I'm speaking with somebody that's that's so well more versed in everything, it's 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 really nice because I'm like, yeah, yeah, and like everyone's like so tired of hearing me talk about at least at home. Um, I love it. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna do some rapid fire questions, and and rapid fire means that's a fancy way of saying random. You do not have to answer these fast. Um, take as much time as you want, and maybe we'll have a discussion with them. So the first question is, in your opinion, do you think the topic, documentary, podcast, show, whatever, of the American Revolution is gaining momentum? status quo or losing ground in this country and why do you feel the way that you do well i think the american revolution has always been overshadowed by other events particularly the civil war world war ii or, or more, much more popular wars um we got a boost in the american revolution as a result of the musical hamilton i think that kind of put the um, era back in the in the popular mind that's obviously beginning to fade a bit now but i think we're right in a trough right now that's going to go up again because we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of a lot of these events and there's a whole lot of uh, movies and documentaries and other things that are in the works right now that we're going to see released over the next couple of years and books lots and lots of books coming out um, all to celebrate the Sester Centennial of the war. And I think that'll be really interesting. Yeah. Are, do you, are you, um, do you have any ancestor? Are you a member of the Sons of the American Revolution? I'm not a member, but I do have ancestors who served in the uh, Pennsylvania Associators. Oh, wow. My, my, um, well, you need to become a member uh, or recommend it. Um, 
the uh, my my ancestor Peter Kern he fought out of uh, Pennsylvania, and I'm so jealous of of your location. I'm here in Idaho, um, and we're members of Mount Vernon, which doesn't make any logical sense um, to most people, but we want to support Mount Vernon. And you have so much history close by to you. It's just, I mean. I, I, I don't think I could get anything done if I moved to the to the east because I would just be going from battlefield to battlefield to battlefield to museum. Uh, I I love all of them. Do you ever have you visited most of those or do you find yourself like hmm, maybe today I'll take a break from the recording and I'm just going to go visit Valley Forge or you know Princeton and Trenton or have you already been there and done that? I've been to a lot of them. I love going back again and again because there's always things that you didn't see when you're there for a few hours once, one time or, or another. So yeah, there's there's plenty to see. Yeah, there's probably I can think of forty or fifty interesting sites within an hour's drive of where I live. So yeah, there's ah. always a lot to do, and it's 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 very fascinating to go see. I actually until recently worked in Philadelphia, mm. and I spent most of my working career working across the street from Independence Hall. And um, within two or three blocks of there, there are so many different things. The, you know, the Bank of the U.S., the Bank of North America, uh, Carpenters Hall, uh, Washington Square, where the Tomb of the Unknown American Revolution soldier is, the Betsy Ross House, the Ben Franklin House, the Jefferson House, all within like three blocks of where I was living. So I would mm -hmm. go out every day at lunch and just wander around and check out something new or spend some time somewhere, different oh. things. It was, it was a great experience. Oh, I wish I just, you know, we we have a long journey to do that, but man, I, I envy you on that for sure. Um, you're right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and <clears throat> being being there, as opposed to even watching it on video and reading about it, which is great, but physically being somewhere where something historical took place, I just don't know if there is a substitute for that. Um, it, it just has an air of, I don't know, it's just extra special. Um, and getting back to how you mentioned the uh, 250th anniversary, uh, and a lot of books coming out. Um, my, I, I'm on a big screen, so I can't show you every book in my two library deals is all also American Revolution. And do you prefer? I think I know the answer, um, but do you prefer the physical book um, versus you know staring at your phone and and or a, a Kindle or something like that? I do prefer books because I can have six of them open at times to different pages and be looking at different things. And, um, you know, until, until they make a good e-paper thing that has a screen that's more than six inches tall, I, I, I'm going to have to have a real book. Yeah. I, I, lo I love the book too. I, I hope that the younger kids, um, don't forget about books um you know they're they're a precious commodity these days with everything kind of going digital <clears throat> excuse me um all right what is your overall opinion on benedict arnold 
<laughs> I know that's like an open-ended three-hour conversation, but um, a lot of people have different probably, views. Yeah, no, I, I'd say he's probably the most fascinating character of the war for a lot of reasons. And he's really an interesting guy. Uh, and he was, I would say, the best battlefield commander that the Americans had uh, for several years. He he did some amazing stuff. He he almost single-handedly kept the British in Canada for about two years, yeah. uh, which if they had been able to get out any sooner would have been a nightmare for the Americans. Uh, I, I sometimes compare him to General Patton in World War II. He was just that he was he was an amazingly good fighter and did not work and play well with others. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy because for perspective, people always say, oh, I, you know, Benedict Arnold synonymous with traitor. He just went to the other side. But in your analogy, that would have been like Patton switching to the other side, which would have been a catastrophe and a big deal. Was it as big as that to the other generals and George Washington and people involved? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it would have been like Patton going over the Nazis and <laughs> There's some conspiracy theories out there that argue that Patton was like almost wanting America to do that because they wanted to fight the Russian communists, which were coming up as the next enemy. Uh, uh, but, you know, obviously he did not do that. He was a loyal American and stayed so. But um, Benedict Arnold did not. Benedict Arnold not only betrayed his country, but betrayed the men that were under his command. He was his plan was to have surrender West Point, where he was the commander and surrender an army of up to maybe 3,000 soldiers who were relying on him to be a loyal and good commander, those men would have gone into prison ships and probably would have died slow, horrible, lingering deaths as a result. So he was really, yeah. at, at a really basic level, betraying those who put their greatest trust in them, not to mention his country and his fellow officers and George Washington, who he yeah. also was going to turn over to the enemy. Um, it was really a horrific act of betrayal. And despite yeah. all the wonderful things he did in the first few years of the war, um, you know, you can say he's a wonderful battlefield commander, which he was, but his sense of honor was was nothing after that. And and you really can't overlook the good after all, all the bad that he did. Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, uh, I think I have a question here about uh, turn. Um Washington Spies, AMC, I think it's on Prime now. We just watched it for the, I don't know how many times. Um, they kind of portray Benedict Arnold um, doing amazing things, right? Um, Saratoga didn't listen to orders and pretty much won that battle uh, because of him, primarily. Um, but do you think... You know, he wasn't promoted because there was a certain allotment per state and he uh, his state was already full. Uh, he then married uh, or started dating the most attractive woman in all of the colonies, Miss um, uh, Shippen. And they kind of portray it like she was maybe feeding some, you know what, your your country isn't giving you a promotion and isn't really appreciating your efforts and all of that do you and and i think the shippens were pretty much known as as opposing uh, the war and kind of more tory what impact do you think that and maybe you've come across some proof or maybe it's just speculation either way it's fine but what do you think her impact on him um 
switching sides did she have? And also, why do you think or what what things led up to him saying, enough's enough. I've done X, Y, and Z. Nobody appreciates me. I'm done. What what, what do you, what, what's your input on that? Well, it's hard to argue that he wasn't promoted enough. I mean, he did get promoted a lot more slowly than he would have liked. But he was a major general, which was the highest rank in the army behind George Washington by the time he uh, switched sides. He did feel like he was being treated unfairly in a lot of different ways. And he, he was wounded very seriously at Saratoga and several other times. Uh, but after Saratoga, uh, he, 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 I think he lost about three inches on one leg. He walked with a terrible limp um, and had a really rough time. Um, like many other officers, he also... Um, spent most a, a great deal of his personal money to support some of the military campaigns that he had mm -hmm. fought with the expectation that Congress would eventually pay him back for all these expenses. And Congress, of course, had no money and had no desire to make any repayments and often tried to find ways to rip off the people who had donated their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause. Um, so he felt very betrayed by that. When the British left Philadelphia after their occupation in 77, 78, yeah, 77, 78, um, he became the um, military governor of Philadelphia. And in that role, Washington actually, and, and several military and, and Con congressional leaders told him, what we want you to do is make nice with all the loyalists and Tories that are in Philadelphia, get them back to work, uh, producing things for the war effort, because most of the loyalists were not, I wouldn't say they were, you know, supporters of the king do or die. They were rich merchants who thought the king is eventually going to win this thing and we want to come out with royal favor and not be... Um, have our, our property seized and, and our people thrown in, the, in our family thrown in the street. Uh, they were looking to be on the winning side. And um, so Arnold's job was really to convince them that the Americans were winning and they needed to back the Americans and support the war effort and start producing the much needed supplies that the Continental Army needed. The people in Philadelphia felt very differently about that. They were like, these are the people who were kissing up to the British while the British were in town, destroying our city and killing our people and doing all sorts of horrible things to us. We should be imprisoning these people, not you know, going to tea parties with them like Arnold was. And so there was a lot of hostility toward Arnold. And it really wasn't, I mean, as I said, Arnold was ordered to do this by the Continental Congress and by George Washington. It wasn't like he was just being nice to the Tories. And of course, at this time, he met the uh, met the, the Shippens, um, met 18-year-old uh, Peggy and, and convinced her to marry him, uh, which, of course, also did not endear him to the radical patriots. Um, and they actually... One of the things Arnold did was try to make some money while he was military governor. He had a lot of property that he was supposed to be seizing, and he would tell these merchants that were going to have their property seized, 
hey, I'm going to seize your property, but you know, tell you what, I'll give you 30 cents on the dollar. I'll buy it from you, and then we won't have to seize it. How's that sound? Um, so he's, he was pulling deals like that. Um, and the president of Pennsylvania um, ended up demanding that he, well, they first tried to prosecute him, and the Continental Congress said, no, he can only be tried by a military court. Mm. And so he insisted on um, Arnold being court-martialed, which he was. Uh, they really didn't find him guilty of much more than bad judgment and um, ordered Washington to give him a reprimand, which he did. He basically said, bad Arnold, don't do it again. Um, Washington's view in the whole thing was, all right, you did some stuff which people think were a little slimy, but you're a great officer. I'm going to say this is bad. Then I'm going to give you this great position in the army. You're going to win some major battle for us. And you'll be a hero once again, and everybody will forget about this bad business. Arnold kind of decided, no, uh, I'm sick of you guys. I've given everything, and all you do is take and badmouth me and make me into this horrible person. Um, the British had approached a great many American officers trying to turn them, um, and most of them, you know, kicked the person out of their house or even had them prosecuted as traitors. Mm. Arnold was receptive to it, and... Um, he went along with it. And I, I'm sure Peggy was a part of that. You know, he, as I said, he was hanging out with a lot of Tories in Philadelphia, not just Peggy, but her father and brother and people like that. Yeah. They obviously had an influence on him and, you know, convinced him that this was not a terrible thing to do. In fact, it was probably the right thing to do. And that, that probably had some influence on him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, I, I never really thought about other generals being courted, so to speak, um, about trying to turn them. I, I guess I never thought that's an interesting point. You know, it's, of course, it always goes right back to Benedict Arnold, who had a, a pretty good-sized ego. Um, but, you know, on one hand, you can kind of see where he's at. But on the other hand, you're like, like you mentioned, I mean, you go to the the prison ships, um, ninety five percent or so ain't ain't coming off alive. So that would have been disastrous. Plus, West Point was so critical, location wise. Um, had had Arnold succeeded in giving up West Point, getting rid of three thousand, what what do you think would have happened? Uh, would that have been game over for the Continental Army at that at that point? I don't. I don't think so. I think the British saw this as being some great victory. Hmm. Imagine that they had taken over West Point. Um, their goal was to, throughout the first three or four years of the war, was to create this connection between New York and Quebec, and basically cut off all of New England from the rest of the colonies, and then deal with these troublesome New Englanders. The problem is that by the time this happened in 1780, the war had spread throughout all 13 colonies. There was hostility to the British everywhere. And there was no way in heck that the British were going to create this defensive line that somehow cut off New England for the rest of the colonies. They could have afforded it at, at West Point, but people mm. could just walk, you know, 50 miles upriver and cross there and never be detected. So mm. I'm not sure it would be this whole thing. And West Point was also pretty far inland, and any time the British tried to set up an outpost 
further inland from their naval forces and that stuff, it just created a new target for the Americans to take on. So I think mm -hmm. even if you had had a whole bunch of the army captured there, you would have had a whole bunch of New England militia be raised and they would have gone and they would have attacked West Point and they would have taken it right back. So I'm not sure what it really accomplished. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Obviously, um, most people think um, that was the big thing. Maybe it's just because the whole story, because then obviously, um, you know, he hooks up with John Andre and they promised 20 grand and then uh, Benedict Arnold says, well, you need to give me 10 more grand because I'll give you Washington. I mean, when you're willing to give up George Washington, of all people, let alone 3,000, you know, um, soldiers that would have probably died. And uh, yeah, yeah, you feel sorry for Arnold briefly and can kind of understand, but then you think of what he was doing. Um, then when, when you start selling off your comrades in arms, that's got to be pretty despicable. That's, and I, and I got to say, Arnold did donate a lot to the cause, but so did a hundred other major officers, and they didn't turn, even though they were being equally screwed by Congress. Yeah, for sure. And and I don't know, Congress back then didn't have any money. They, you know, made it made decisions agonizing slow. So I guess nothing's really changed from then uh, to today. Um, all right, so that's uh, Benedict Arnold. Uh, what is your, if you can pin it down, your favorite historical location relating to the American Revolution? Since you live by so many, is there one that you just, if I had to go to only one, it would be this? Well, well personally, I grew up near Brandywine Battlefield, so that always holds a, a personal place in my heart that uh, I really um love to go back to again and again um more generally there's a as i said there's a lot of stuff along the delaware river washington's crossing is always a very nice place and you can follow the trail from there to trenton and princeton and that's there's a lot of interesting stuff to see up there as well washington yeah my wife and i went to washington's crossing and then we drove across the bridge and for some reason we didn't go along the trail to go up to Princeton and Trenton. I'm just kicking myself, but that is a good excuse for us to go back. Um, yeah, I, always, I always like to joke, crossing the Delaware is not that big a deal. I do it twice a day, but you know, going into Trenton at, tr going into Trenton at night, that takes some nerve. Uh, <laughs> for sure. All right. So if you had to pin it down to maybe the top one or two um, people on the British side, who do you think was most important or who had the most impact on the war itself? I'm kind of asking you unfair questions because there's a lot involved, but who do you think the most important person or persons were on the British side? Well, you had a lot of military commanders over the course of the war. I mean, you started with Gage and then you had General Howe and then General Clinton and um, even General um, Carlton was a commander for a little time at the end there. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, if you want to go with the cliche, I, I would say King George III was an important personality in all this. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the king really didn't have much influence on things at this time. He was more of an honorary figurehead sort of guy. George III was not. He was actually pretty actively involved, especially behind the scenes. He was a strong supporter of putting down this rebellion through military force rather than compromise. He um, um, really 
um, when the war got tough, especially after Saratoga and France joined the war, a lot of British politicians really said, let's just settle this American thing, give them independence, who cares, let's, let's be done with it. George III was the one who really said, no, we cannot give up these colonies. We have to keep pushing to um, win this war. Uh, if we don't win the war, the empire's dead. Um, and he really almost single-handedly kept Lord North in place as prime minister when a lot of people wanted to get rid of him, when Lord North tried to resign two or three times um, because the king knew that if he was replaced, he would be replaced by a peace candidate who was going to end the war. So George III played a big role. If I wanted to pick somebody else, I'd probably go with General Howe um, only because I think he had the best chance to win the war early on and really blew it. Uh, you know, and to be fair to him, we're looking at it in hindsight and can see exactly what he did wrong. Uh, there were good reasons for why he did what he did. But I think, um, you know, if you want to blame the, uh, the big person who really lost the war for the British, I would go with General Howe. Okay. And same question, who do you think was the most important on the American side? I think the cliche answer is the right one, which is George Washington, um, who's you know obviously the most famous person to come out of this era. And for a long time, I kind of thought, all right, he must be overhyped, um, is usually the case. You find that this was really more of a, you know, you know, hundreds of people contributed to the overall victory, which of course people did. But the more I read, the more I really accepted the idea that Washington, to use another author's phrase, really was the indispensable man, that this revolution would not have happened without him. Um, he was not the best strategist. He was not the best tactician, although he was very brave in battle. Um, but he was not the best field commander. He was not probably the fifth or sixth best field commander that the Americans had. Uh, but his ability to maintain an army that would um, be obedient to Congress, no matter how irresponsible Congress got, to insist on the civilian rule, to insist that this country become a democratic republic rather than him becoming dictator of some independent country, um, were all things that a lot of people did not expect to happen, that were very um, unusual course of events. Um, for revolutions. Hmm. And I think George Washington was the man who made all that happen. And then not to mention the fact that he took some really incredible military risks at certain times, which saved the war effort. So yeah. I have to go with George Washington. I would agree. I would definitely agree. And <clears throat> you, you, you know, you, you've mentioned it several times on a variety of different episodes. I think people think of the founding fathers, George Washington, John Jay, Adams, Jefferson, and, and the rest. It's so long ago, and we just have no audio. We don't have a picture. We just have paintings, which some of them are, are quite lifelike. We do have a life mask of several of them. But it's <clears throat> we forget that they had families. They had wives. They had anger. Um, George Washington, although he was extraordinary at keeping it in check, um, he had a, a pretty vicious uh, temper. And we, I think we just forget about that these people were human. 
Um, David McCullough always, you know, mentioned that, uh, you know, history is about men and, and, and they weren't just robots and they're not just on Mount Rushmore or a dollar bill. And I think it's important for people to realize that I love how you have mentioned that in your show. Um, it's just so easy to say, oh, you know what, George Washington, he was rich, he owned slaves, he 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 just did what he had to do and and, and he won. And I'm like, oh, do you have seven hours? Because I'm ready to talk to you, right? Uh, and then they leave <laughs> well, and they go, you know, Ron's going to talk about the revolution again. And that's the thing. You have some people that'll treat these founders like they're marble statues and perfect and gods in every way. And then you'll have, you'll inevitably have the other side where you'll say, oh, these were illegal slave owners who did horrible things or maintaining a patriarchy and, you know, did all these other things. And you're right that the, the answer is always somewhere in the middle. These were human beings. They had good aspects to their lives. They had bad aspects to their lives. Uh, I don't try to judge I don't judge people today. I don't certainly don't want to judge historical figures whose shoes I really can't stand in. Um, but I, tr my goal is to try to understand why they did what they did, and to the extent we judge them, I think we have to look at what was society like when they were born, and what was society like when they died, and did they have a major positive or negative impact on society? And, and these people, in my opinion, had a, a huge positive impact on society. Um, was America perfect once they founded it in the 1790s? No, uh, it had its problems and it continued to grow. And, you know, we tried to form a more perfect union over generations, but they are, they're the ones who started it. They're the ones who set the bar for where we are today. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, what do you think about when you hear the Declaration of Independence, I, a little late because it's you know July Fourth, obviously, or second. Um, but what do you think about when you hear or read the Declaration of Independence? Well, they didn't sign it till August second, so we're still in that time period. Um, yeah, I mean, the Declaration could have been, it could have been a nothing, and most people thought it was going to be a nothing when they decided who was going to write it because they gave it to a very junior congressman who they knew was a decent writer, but not much else, Thomas Jefferson. They could have simply wrote down in a piece of paper, we the 13 colonies hereby declare independence from King George and Great Britain, signed John Hancock. That could have been the end of it. Obviously, they took it a lot more seriously than that. And what Jefferson really set out to do was explain what they believed in and why the British government and specifically the king was not living up to what they expected from a government. And when they said things like, um, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I mean, we, we seem to think that's really nice words these days and maybe they didn't completely live up to them in all aspects of their lives, but they were just nice words. Those were radical words. Those were crazy words for people living in Europe at the time. I mean, men were not created equal. Um, there were aristocrats and there were commoners and they had very different rights under the law. And they had, you know, there, there were no such things as fundamental rights. You fought for what you got in this world. Mm. Um, government was not there to protect fundamental rights. Government was a power to rule over you and it would give you some benefits to its negatives in order to keep you in line and think, all right, well, 
this is better than the alternative, I'll stick with it. The idea that there were basic fundamental freedoms and rights that government, that no legitimate government could not protect was a very radical idea in 1776. And the fact that they were just saying, well, these are just self-evident truths. They're just obvious to us, um, was a very radical stand at the time. Um, I think it's something that's proven very right over the next few centuries and something we've tried to live up to over that time uh, with sometimes greater or lesser um, um, success. But uh, yeah, it's. I think, again, they set the bar that we've been trying to live up to since then. Mm. I always get um, asked the question, especially from um, <clears throat> the students that my wife and I teach. Um, they, they say, well, how could Thomas Jefferson write that all men are created equal when he owned over 600 slaves? And what would your answer be to that? Because, you know, here, here he is writing this down. We're all equal. They knew that in writing this, I would assume, how do you say that when you go back to Monticello and you have 600 slaves over the course of his lifetime, I guess. But what, what's your, what's your uh, position on when when people throw the curveball or try to say how do you how do you support the founding fathers they wrote this but then they went back to their slaves do you have a, a good answer or reply to that well i would say that nobody really thought slavery was wrong a generation before the american revolution um you know people always say oh well the quakers opposed slavery no they didn't um william penn had slaves uh I've read actually a story, I think from the 1750s, where a group of Quakers kicked out one of their members because he wouldn't stop talking about trying to end slavery, and they just thought that was ridiculous. Um, so everybody supported slavery. It was a normal thing, um, mm -hmm. and it was part of an overall society, which is you are born into a station in life, and you live in that life. If you're born as a noble, you're a nobleman. If you're born as a commoner, you're born as a commoner. If you're born as a slave, you're born as a slave, and you live as a slave. These were considered completely non-controversial things. Mm. What the American Revolution started was the idea that, well, yeah, this is the way the world is, but is it the way the, way the world should be? And what we are setting here is what we think the way the world should be. Um, now, they were really thinking about the idea of the rights of colonists versus the rights of British people when they wrote All Men Are Created Equal. But almost immediately, um, you see a lot of people saying, well, if we really believe that, can we really have slavery? And the anti-slave movement grew very directly out of the American Revolution. And seven of the 13 states ended slavery within a few years, um, or at least put it on the road to being um, abolished in their state uh, within a few years of the end of the American Revolution. And they, I can't imagine that they would have done that had we not had that revolution and had these words that we put out there, again, setting the bar for something that needs to change. Thomas Jefferson himself became very anti-slavery um, in later in life. Uh, he did not give up slavery, uh, free his own slaves, because 
it, it would have destroyed him financially yeah. to do so. Um, and you can say that's a failing, sure, but how many of us would give up all of our life savings and everything we own for a principal? Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to ask of anyone. Um, and so while, yeah, it would have been nice if he had done it, we can certainly understand why he didn't. Um, but it, again, it was the principles that he wrote about that gave rise to the abolition movement that eventually ended slavery. And, you know, it ended slavery. Well, I mean, people say, oh, well, Britain ended slavery and America still had it. Well, Britain didn't end slavery until the 1830s. The abolition movement that grew out of the Declaration of Independence took hold in Britain as well, and it took hold in France, and it took hold in a lot of other places where slavery was the accepted norm. Mm -hmm. They were changing these ideas, and people say, well, if they really changed ideas, why didn't they just change it? Oh, did I lose you? As we've seen in other revolutions like the French Revolution and disaster and everybody, you know, usually millions of people die as a result. The framers understood that change takes time and that you can't just change everything overnight with the flick of a pen. Mm. Um, they started a process that they knew would take a long time to happen, and it did take a long time to happen, but it did happen. Um, and a lot of other places, the, the that tried to change too much too fast devolved into a nightmare for everyone. Chaos, yeah. Well said. I, um, it was it was normal back then, and uh, and I think it's unfair and unwise and really impossible to compare where you are today, 1800, 1700, 16. You can't compare histories that are centuries apart because well let me let me give you a modern example this may sound a little crazy but it's something i've been thinking oh, about. i like it right now they're they're developing a way to produce meat um by growing cells in a petri dish as opposed to raising and killing animals i suspect that if this is successful in a generation or two people will look back on the idea of raising and massacring animals for our personal food and pleasure as being a horrific thing but right now we don't think of it that way. It's perfectly normal. And you know, mm -hmm. if I think about a poor cow being massacred and killed in the slaughterhouse, it's it's not a pleasant thought to me. But it's not going to stop me from eating a hamburger either. Um, right. So I'm living with a bit of a contradiction there, in that I see the pain that is being caused by the process, but I'm not really willing to give up my own comforts in life um, to change that, even though it would be nice if that change could happen. And and as I said, when when slaughtering animals maybe is no longer necessary 50 years from now, people may look back on me and say, well, Mike, come on, there were vegetarians at your time. Why didn't you become a vegetarian? There were um, lots of arguments that and you yourself said that, you know, this is kind of a cruel process. Why, why did you continue to live with it? All I can say is, well, I do. And it's the norm in the society in which I live. Mm -hmm. And don't hold me to a standard that becomes normal 50 or 100 years from now. I like that. That's a good, very good example. Um, especially since we raise our own beef here, it's, it makes it even a little more difficult. But if people had to actually raise and grow and process their own meat, um, 
you'd have a lot more appreciation for it. But I love that example. It's very well said. Um, <clears throat> putting on our trench coats and sunglasses and our sneaky hat and breaking out the invisible ink. Um, the most widely known, probably because of Turn, is a, a group of spies called the Culper Spy Ring. Um, do you have any input or stories about the Culper Spiring that you like to share or that maybe isn't talked about very much and isn't widely known? Well, as we've already noted, much of the Culper Spiring that we do know about is in popular knowledge, at least, is, is from the AMC's turn, the TV show. Um, and I think they actually did a pretty good job with it. Um, I mean, there were some, there are obviously some discrepancies, but um, the Culper spy ring was kind of an evolution in how espionage worked during the war. Early in the war, um, Washington, who had, as I said, very, very little command experience, um, I don't think appreciated the need for intelligence as, as important as it was. And when he did try to get it, he did it very poorly. Um, as Nathan Hale found out the hard way. Um, so we see kind of um, the Americans trying to find a better way to gather intelligence without putting their operatives at risk. And the Culper spy ring was, was a big part of that. Uh, Colonel Talmadge, who became the um, head of the ring for the Continental Army, was from Long Island, which was occupied for, by the British for the, almost the entire war. And he was able to go back and contact childhood friends that he knew and trusted implicitly to be a part of this ring, which meant that he could do this without setting up a bunch of double agents within the uh, ring. Um, and they, they did a pretty impressive job with getting information from behind British lines uh, to um, directly to the commander in chief. I can't remember who it was, but... <clears throat> they, I remember reading somewhere that a British officer years after said there is no way that Washington and his army could have won without the intelligence that was discovered through spies. Obviously, there was more than just the Culper spying, but um, would you agree with that statement of that British officer or have you heard that before? Well, espionage is obviously very important to any any military campaign. Knowing what your enemy is going to do, where they're going to attack, when they're going to attack, can make your life so much easier than trying to defend everywhere all at once. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they they did provide a good deal of helpful information. Um, it's hard to judge a counterfactual if they if they didn't exist, would the Americans still have done okay? There were a couple of really critical times when the Culper spy ring was especially helpful. Um, for one of the, I think the most critical was when the French first arrived in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, the British were going to go up and attack them. And if they had attacked immediately, the British, the French were in pretty horrible shape. Uh, most of their um, men were, were recovering from seasicknesses and stuff. And, and they, they were just in really miserable condition when they first arrived. Um, they would not have done well with with a British attack, and they needed they needed weeks to build defenses up properly too. Mm. Washington found out they were going to do this through this Culper spy ring, and he was able to 
get counterintelligence back to the British saying the Americans were planning an attack on New York. And he ended up moving some troops into just above northern Manhattan to make it look like he really was going to plan, uh, make an attack. And so the British called off their attack of the French and instead reinforced their defenses on, on Manhattan to prevent this American attack, which of course never came. So that was, you know, if the, if the if the French had been captured or the French army had been destroyed right after it landed, that certainly would have been disastrous and we never would have had a successful Yorktown campaign. Mm. And I like how <clears throat> Washington and I suppose other, I just read um, the, his own writing of Talmadge and it was just, you know, kind of cool to have his own words, but he just time and time again, you know, I went in and talked with Washington. And I'm like, ah, if I could sit down with Washington, um, that would be really cool. But he also used inf disinformation, um, you know, and made sure that it got into the enemy's hands to either send them to a different area or think that we were doing X when we were actually doing Y. Um, spying is, is probably in every war. Um, and it's nothing new. It wasn't created for the revolution, but um, some cool stuff came out of it with Invisible Ink and and a variety of other things. So, all right. So if you could oh, go ahead. I was just going to say one other thing that's really interesting to me yeah. is that you can see how much of an amateur Washington really was in 1775 when he started doing this and how much of an amazing expert he was in this by 1783 when the war ended, and just his personal growth, especially not only in, in military strategy, but in espionage specifically, you can see how much the man grew and improved over time as a result of what he was going through. Well, and I think, like you said, he wasn't the best tactician. He probably may, maybe wasn't even in the top five as far as battlefield um, generals, but one thing that he was good at is listening and taking input and feedback from everybody and then taking all that information and making a final decision um one Absolutely. thing that's uh one thing to to strive for um all right so this is going to be a tough question well maybe not it, it, i know my answer um but if you could sit down with one person from the revolution who would it be and what would you ask them or what would you want to know um, if you had that opportunity to sit down with anybody from the revolution. I know you just mentioned George Washington, and of course, that would be a really interesting discussion, you'd think. I would love to be able to get into his head on a whole bunch of different things. One of the things about Washington was that he was extremely guarded and almost never let anyone know, not even his closest friends, really know what he was thinking. So I'm not sure having a discussion with him would be as fruitful as we would like. We would like to get all sorts of stuff, and he would probably mostly change the topic and <laughs> and, and avoid answering the questions the way we wanted. So um, yeah, if I, if I was going to sit down with someone, probably someone like Samuel Adams would be really interesting just because he was such a big part of starting the war and understanding where he thought things were really going at that time as opposed to where they actually went uh, he was also a big opponent of the constitution when it came out and i would like to really have a talk with him about why he thought that that was such a danger to society mm. good stuff so i like the fact in your podcast that you talk about people that 
made made a large impact made a big difference in in our independence but they're not the no most known they're not founding fathers is there a uh, a person or a group of people that isn't widely known or discussed often that you feel deserves to be spoken more about One of my favorite unsung characters is someone almost no one has ever heard of unless they listen to my podcast. <laughs> and that's Jemima Warner. Uh, she was a um, young teenage wife of a continental soldier who marched off with the army in 1775 at the very beginning of the war. And her husband was a group of part of a group of Pennsylvania riflemen who were attached to Benedict Arnold's army that did the march across the main wilderness to attack um, Quebec from the other side. That march was a disaster. Mm. Um, most of the army that had been under Arnold turned back and just said it was too hard, we'll never make it across. Uh, Arnold eventually later tried to have them um, court-martialed for, for disobeying orders and turning back. And the court-martial acquitted them saying that Conditions were too harsh. No man could be expected to go through that. Um, but a portion of the army did get through. And Jemima Warner was part of that portion that did get through. Uh, many of the men starved and died along the way. They were forced to eat their dogs, to eat their own shoe leather, uh, to get across the wilderness. Uh, Jemima Warner's husband died during that march. Um, and she left the army behind to bury him. And then when he was buried, she picked up his gun and marched, caught up with the army and continued on the march. Uh, nobody would have um, thought any less of her if she had turned around and gone home at that point, but she didn't. She stuck with the army. And when they reached uh, Quebec, um, they actually sent her to the front gates to demand the surrender. Mm. And um, General Gage inside actually took her prisoner through a dungeon and said, You're, this is ridiculous. Um, they eventually turned her back over to the Americans who were maintaining a siege outside. She spent most of her time supporting the soldiers. She was not a combatant, but she would bring water and ammunition and those things to the front lines um, to, for the men who were putting herself in great danger, so much in great danger that a British soldier eventually shot her in the head and killed her. Mm. Um, she led an amazing, heroic life, and no one in the world has ever heard of her. Mm. Well, I'll make sure I find that episode that you talked to her and I'll put that link for sure. Um, but um, it's actually the the very first episode I did of Unlearned History was on her, and and I go into the reasons why she's not remembered too. It's, it's okay. I thought it was interesting. If you can, if you can uh, bear with the. Um, technical horrors of my um, podcast hey. ability in my very first episode but the subject matter I think is interesting yeah uh, somebody else who I always thought really deserves a lot more credit um, is John Lawrence uh, his father Henry Lawrence was president of the Continental Congress at one point and at that time John Lawrence was a aide-de-camp to George Washington and he his he was actually a critical connection between his father and Washington during the uh, Conway cabal when they were thinking about replacing Washington with another general. Um, so he had a really critical role there. In addition to that, he was just always 
showing bravery. He was at the forefront of everything. His two best buddies in the war were Alexander Hamilton and Marquis de Lafayette, who we all know much better than him. Um, he was he was an amazing soldier. His father was also a major, major uh, slave trader in South Carolina before the war. And during the course of the war, John Lawrence became a staunch abolitionist and called for the end of slavery and actually wanted to arm uh, South Carolina slaves and form a, a regiment of, of black soldiers, uh, which he was not able to do given the politics in South Carolina at the time. But that's who he was. He was really a man who was seeing the future of this country and the freedom and equality that we needed to adopt and was ready to embrace that. Unfortunately, he was killed in 1782 in a minor skirmish. I think if he had lived through the war, he would have been an amazing Southern voice for abolition. And this this country may have evolved in a very different way than the way it did. Mm. John Lawrence. Yeah. Um, I think uh, on my last episode, I, uh, I play a bit that I found on, I think Mark Price did it. Um, he goes around to a group of people outside and just asks them random questions about the American Revolution. And uh, and it was funny at first, and then it was not so funny because people didn't know who we were fighting. Um, and it was kind of insane. Like I'm like, oh, people, even if you're not a nerd about the American Revolution, we are all abiding by, or should be, the documents that were created by these founding fathers. So even if history is not your bag, I think at minimum you would want to know about what took place in the people behind those documents, which this country is founded. And it just, it, it just drives me nuts. I, I don't expect anybody to, you know, go do a podcast or, you know, study it exclusively, but you should know it. And I think um, many public schools are kind of bypassing the revolution or they're taking out World War One and two and who knows what's really being taught. Is there anything that you want to set the record straight on about the American Revolution that you might read or hear and you're like, uh, -uh that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, is there anything that stands out? You may or may not have have an idea of one, but well, what you say is right, and it's an unfortunate result that, that schools don't really teach history well. Uh, they'll, they'll give you a few basic facts, and you're right, that you're lucky if they spend a week on the American Revolution, and probably most of that's on the Constitutional Convention. Um, and, and I get it, there's a lot to get through, and what they, what they end up teaching is a few facts and make it very bland and uninteresting, and people get totally bored with it. The reality is that history, not just the American Revolution, all of history is made up of really fascinating stories involving sex and violence and all sorts of interesting things that people really don't learn about. And if they if they take the time to get into it, you know, everybody says truth is stranger than fiction. It really is. If you read a piece of fiction that has some unbelievable thing in it, it just becomes stupid to you. Mm. If you read something that you know really happened and still was this unbelievable fact, like, you know, the fact that... Um, when Washington was trying to escape from Long Island to New York after the British had him pinned down, and there was just this huge storm that kept um, 
the dark, you know, through the entire morning so the British couldn't see him and a wind that kept the British ships away. You know, if you wrote that in a book of fiction, you'd be like, oh, that's just silly. That would never happen. Well, it did happen. And the fact that it did, it makes it just that much more interesting. So, yeah, the weather, there's a lot. You can get the weather to. played a, a role in several uh, oh yeah, you know that's which, just one example. But, yeah, which yeah, you're right. Just... I mean, it, it truth is, it's 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 insane. Is there something that's always out there, or that's something that you always hear that, like people, like this is a bad example, but George Washington had wooden teeth, and he cut down the cherry tree. Both of those. Yeah, are there's not... some of that, which yeah. most people know are, are just stories. But one of the biggest misconceptions, I guess, that I find is that we fought the American Revolution over high taxes. Um, it had nothing to do with the level of taxes. Taxes in the colonies were actually lower than they were in Britain. Um, it, it, what it had to do with was, you know, we've all heard the phrase taxation without representation. The idea was Parliament did not have the right to tax the colonies because the colonies were not represented in Parliament. And the, and the reason behind that, that's, that's not just a line, the reason behind that was you have to have the ability to vote out people who are taking your property away from you, or else there is nothing to prevent them from taking more and more property over time. So even if they just passed a very small tax right now, that tax could grow much, much larger in a generation or two. And you know the people were able to see what was happening in other parts of the British Empire, where basically all the wealth gets sucked out of a region. Mm. Um, people are left on bare subsistence. And then when there's a problem like, you know, the Irish famine or there was another famine in Bangladesh at the time of the revolution, millions of people just starved to death because they, they'd extracted all the excess wealth out of there. And that's what the Americans were trying to prevent from happening. Not that taxes were high now, but that they had the right to control their own destiny. And that, that that's what they wanted to do. I mean, think about it today. Say next week. The United Nations imposed a tax on all Americans. It was a very small tax. Maybe it cost you a dollar a year or something. And it was being used for a very good purpose to help people that were starving to death somewhere. Our objection would not be on the level of taxes. Our objection would not be on what the taxes were being used for. The objection would be the United Nations does not have the right to just impose a tax on Americans by force. And that's what the American colonists thought that the British Parliament was doing to them. Mm, excellent. Let's fast forward to the last major battle or siege or both that it became, um, that being Yorktown. Um, once you reach Yorktown in your podcast, is that where you think your show is going to end? Uh, do you have plans on maybe going past Yorktown, um, following, I don't following the turmoil, maybe the first few presidents. I think it's okay because people don't know the history, but they think 13 colonies banded together, we beat England, and afterwards, you know, we elected Washington and life was grand. And it could not be anything further from the truth than that. But being Yorktown was the last major battle. Um, do you have, and maybe you don't know, because you haven't reached that yet, but is that going to be the last or near the last episode? Or have you put any thought on how far you want to take this, your podcast? I haven't decided exactly how far I will go. Um, 
But certainly there's 18 months of war after Yorktown, which I, I absolutely want to cover um, before we get to the treaty. Um, poor John Lawrence gets killed in there, so it certainly wasn't over for him at Yorktown. Um, we then have about seven years of chaos in America where we are struggling as independent states, um, not sure that we're going to form a single country. Uh, there is a, and people just assume that, all right, well, once we won the war, it was inevitable that there would be a United States of America. Absolutely not the case. And, and you, you know, to bring up the slavery issue again, a lot of people said, well, why didn't they end slavery at the Constitution? There would not have been a United States if the Northern states had attempted to end slavery at the Constitutional Convention. The Southern states simply would not have joined. And the founders said, our priority is creating a United States, and we can deal with the problems that exist within that United States once we have the United States. So there's a lot to cover there through the Constitutional Convention and, and probably even beyond that a little bit. I'm not sure. Right now, it takes me about 30 or so episodes, 30, 35 episodes to get through one year of war. Um, in some of these post-war years, I'm sure I will get through a year of, of, of actual time in a much shorter time, maybe five or 10 episodes. So I won't be covering it as intensively as I've covered the war. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still a lot of interesting things happening. Uh, the quasi-war, uh, Shays Rebellion, Doors Rebellion, um, things like that that are still going on during this time that are very interesting that most people don't know about and that are worth covering. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm just glad that, that there's a lot more to come because um, I'm not the only one. Um, obviously, millions of people love what you're doing and probably uh, don't look forward to the day where you say, well, this is my last episode. Maybe you'll maybe you'll do a spinoff. Um, I just love the fact that I can talk to somebody else uh, that understands the process of uh, researching and putting together a podcast and, and all of that. If there's a, a young kid or maybe even an adult out there that's listening, um, maybe they're interested in doing a podcast or writing a book or an article about the revolution. Is there any uh, advice or something that you would want to tell them that might help them in that beginning early stages process? Well, for me, it's always been about finding interesting stories. Don't worry about names and dates and, and all that stuff. That's that's nice. But what really captures people's imagination are are the interesting stories, the stories of who and how they did what they did and why they did what they did is, is the most interesting thing to cover. Stories. Yeah. Yep. Is there anything else at all that you would like to share with everybody involving or about the American Revolution? Well, as I said, I, I find the era absolutely fascinating. I think people don't appreciate how different the world was before the revolution because we take for granted so many of the freedoms and concepts of how government should work. Uh, we take that for granted today um, because of what happened in the American Revolution. So the, the way the world changed as a result of this era um, is just it's, it's a really big deal and people need to understand that. Well, I um, I could talk to you for the rest of the day and probably the rest of the week, um, but wanting to be as respectful as I can, I've taken up a lot of your time already, but 
we'll wrap it up here. And uh, um, if if you have not listened to his podcast, go to my show notes, click it. Um, you will be very happy that you did. It's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal podcast. Um, and I'd really highly encourage you to visit his uh, his blog. Um, it has as as much information in the podcast. There's just even more treasures to be found on on your um, your blog page. And I will have links to everything associated um, with Mr. Troy uh, in my show notes. Uh, for you listeners, it's PatriotPowerPodcast.com. And lastly, nobody likes to talk about this, but I hope that you consider donating to his podcast or any podcast for that matter um, that you find of value because donations help with a couple things. Um, the time, uh, which you oftentimes can't put a dollar price tag on, um, and it helps offset the cost. And and I think that that he does this um, for the love uh, and the passion that he has for the revolution. But as with anything else, there's costs involved. So a great way to support and show your support is to make a donation. So um, I think you have a, a PayPal button right on your um, blog that so people can just click it, make a donation. Doesn't have to be five million, but if you want to do five million, I don't think he'd turn it down. <laughs> Um, you know, a couple bucks here, a couple bucks there. Be be a show sponsor. Um, sponsor the show for five bucks a month. It's 60 bucks a year. I mean, that's probably what you spend in three days at uh, buying coffees. So um, help offset some of his costs. I, I just want to thank you again. You are a, a treasure trove of information, and it is so nice to have you and your voice and your humor and all of the information and a structured, easy to read, full of research. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, so I really want to thank you for what you've done uh, to me personally and inspiring me, but as well as all the people that you are helping shed the story of the founding of our country and for people that many don't hear about. And, uh, Again, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.